So there are a number of different kinds of sermons you can preach. I don't know if any of you have ever heard someone talk about, you know, when you go to seminary, you take a class called a homiletics class, which is just a really fancy word for, hey, when you preach, this is how you should do it. And so you take this class and they tell you, like, okay, well, you can, you can preach like this, or then you can preach like this, or maybe you can preach like this. Then you finish seminary, you go off, and if you are preaching, you basically forget everything you learned in that class for the first couple years until you finally get your stride. And you start to remember, oh, yeah, I could do that thing. That would be really helpful. Um, so in homiletics class, there's the expository style of preaching, which is like, hey, let's read a passage of Scripture, and I'm going to explain to you what that means. And that's how we're going to go. Like, that's expository. Then there's, like, other styles, like extemporaneous styles, which is where you have no notes. You just get up, and you just, like, let the Spirit kind of do its thing. And hopefully the Spirit is there. Otherwise, it's just you talking in front of people. And that's not really my, <laughs> not really my way of doing things. But then there's this kind of, and to be honest, I don't remember the word for it, but it's a style where... Instead of saying, well, this is what it means, or instead of saying, well, I'll just trust the Spirit to say whatever I'm saying, I, I prefer to just go through the passage myself. And if I feel like I've learned something, I'd like to share that with you. So this is just my maybe monthly, maybe bi-monthly reminder that when I preach, that is not Scripture talking. This is me talking. So... If you hear something 10 years from now and you think back, you think, wow, Pastor Kevin preached the opposite of that, but this new teaching sounds a lot smarter. It probably is, and you should feel free to go with that. I preface all of that because I'm about to intentionally apply a passage of Scripture in a way it was not intended. Okay? But I think the principle of the passage holds. So I don't know if you, when you read through uh, 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, we were reading that warning against idleness, right? I don't know if you've ever, like, you know, when I was in school, we were learning history, and you go through the story of, um, you know, the new colonies and the new world, and you've got, you know, John Smith, and he was telling everyone, well, if you will not work, you will not eat, because that's what the Bible says, and so that's how he was forcing people to go out and to grow food and work in the garden so that come winter they didn't all starve, right? I think that passage is actually a pretty good interpretation. I think John Smith was justified in saying, hey, if you don't help us grow food, you, you don't get to eat the food, right? And, and Paul is pretty clearly talking about that in the context of the church in Thessalonica that he's talking to, right? He said, look, I've, I've heard that some of you are pretty idle. You're just mere busybodies, which I love that phrase. You don't really do anything. You just kind of talk about stuff all the time. And the church supports you. You should probably get to work. And so, you know, Paul is pretty clearly talking about a, a physical needs kind of work and a physical provision kind of thing going on here. However, I think that there is something else we can do here. <coughs> and I think that thing is to realize that not all work is just to provide for physical needs. I think that in the church, 
we are called to do work as well. I think the Holy Spirit has work set aside that you are uniquely prepared to do. You. Not you or the ten people closest to you because it doesn't matter, but, but you. You have been created in a unique way that no one else on the planet ever has or ever will be again. And the Holy Spirit has work worth doing for you. Which begs the question, okay, well, what work is there? Like, okay, God, if, if, you've got some, if you've got something set aside for me to do, what is that? What is it that you want me to go and be? What is it that you want me to go and do? And see, there's this scene, if you've ever seen the Matrix trilogy of movies, they came out when I was in middle school, and they were like the height of cool, right? It was like the first time they'd done like the hyper slow motion shots. Like, they're super common in films now. Like, you see them on regular TV shows. But when they first were done, it was, like, super the uber cool, right? And so everyone was watching these movies. But then the sequels came out. And there's this scene where, like, all the humans are being, like, chased around by the robots. Because it's one of those crazy sci-fi movies. And you've got this guy named Morpheus who's, like, the leader of the resistance. You know? Really cool dude. And he's standing there, and he's giving this speech about how they've been hunted, they've been oppressed, they've been pushed, they've been knocked down. But then the climax of the speech comes when he's standing up in front of everyone, and he says, but we are still here. And everyone goes and starts cheering crazy, and they get super excited. Like, this, this, it was this moment of defiance. Like, in the face of everything that has challenged us, in the face of everything that has hunted us, in the face of every obstacle we have overcome, here we still stand. It's, just, it's like, it's a, it's a mini climax of the movie. And I think in a lot of our churches, and I don't mean necessarily these four walls, but I mean the four walls of every church across our state, our country, maybe our world, I don't know. I haven't been to many outside the United States. We've become really proud of the fact that we are still here. And maybe that's not as exciting as it was in The Matrix. Maybe there's something better we can be doing because the gospel message isn't a message of being saved and then simply surviving and being, we are still here until the end times when God comes back and fixes everything for us. I think the gospel message in its fullness is partaking in an invasion that Jesus Christ started, where our weapons are compassion and generosity. And we are forgiven of sin, yes, of course. But if all we're doing is sitting in a corner and trying to avoid being a jerk to our neighbor, we're not really doing anyone much good. Because there's work to be done. And so that kind of begs the question then, if gospel is partially being forgiven of sin and partially doing the work that's been laid out for us, well, what, what is sin? And the first time I had a seminary professor ask me that question, we're all sitting in class. You've got these people who are like doing master's degrees work in theology. And then a professor stands up front and says, okay, what is sin? It's the kind of question you hear in Sunday school class, right? Like you, you've been hearing about it for most of your life if you've been going to church all your life. But then you have this room full of people who we were trying to become educated in such things. <laughs> and they ask us, what is sin? And we all go, And there was this kind of quiet moment where every single one of us realized that every answer we had just seemed to fall short. We had a lot of answers. 
We can say, well, it's doing things wrong. It's going against the will of God. It's being disobedient. It's, you know, like we had a bunch of those kind of answers. But then we realized that everything else we were learning kind of made those answers, eh, like there was just this, this, this flaw in each of them. We're like, well, yes, it's that, but. Or maybe it's this, oh, but. And so no one, no one had the guts to be the first one to answer the question. So we're sitting here in this class going, well, what is sin? What are we saved from? And if I were to answer that question today, I would say, well, sin is choosing to be selfish if God has commanded you to be generous. I think sin would be choosing a lie when God is clearly the God of truth. Sin could be choosing to do nothing when God has asked us to do something good. Sin is hurting others because we believe in our heads. We've convinced ourselves it prevents some greater harm later. But to put it simply, sin is just not gospel. And so now if we were sitting in that same imaginary classroom and we were saying, okay, well, what is gospel? What is the gospel? So I was listening to N.T. Wright, he was giving this interview. And for those of you who don't know N.T. Wright, you seriously need to Google the guy and listen to like everything he's ever said, because he's a good guy. I always learn something. His message was that the gospel is not just a series of facts about what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. The gospel is not simply that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died, that we might live again, that we might be forgiven. That's, that's not the full gospel. Because he said, yes, there's that message there in Corinthians where that's what Paul said. But there are other messages where Paul says, and this is the gospel, and he lays it out. And, oh, this is the gospel, and he lays it out. And so, again, you've got that moment where you're like, oh, I have lots of answers for that question. But I don't have one answer that hits everything that the gospel is. Because the gospel, again, is not just an absence of bad things. The word gospel in Roman times was used to celebrate some big, huge announcement by the state of Rome. They would come back and say, hey, we've got good news for you. We've got gospel for you. We've won this military victory, and now they've joined the Roman Empire. Hey, we've got this gospel victory. We've got this rebellion has been quelled. Hey, we've got this new leader. You have a new king. Here's the gospel. That's the way they used that word. And so for Paul to use that word, it has this connotation of a kingdom being advanced. And so gospel is the knowledge and the truth and the hope that the kingdom of God is being advanced, not only in your own life, but also in the world around us. And so then comes in the not only the personal salvation, God has saved me, but there's also that other half that God is saving you and your neighbor and the guy down the street and people three countries over. That, in its entirety, is the gospel. It's an invasion. It's the advancing of the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is lots of different things, but it's, it's what takes us from being passive survivors of the world to being active participants and agents of change in the world. It gives direction 
to the arrow of history, if we believe that God's gospel is advancing, and that God, in the end, succeeds in remaking the world as it should be, it gives a new phrase, a new term to that phrase, hope in Christ, because our hope in Christ is not only for personal salvation, but that Christ will inhabit the world and remake the world as it should be. We're not here to survive. We're here as an advanced guerrilla warfare force to enact the kingdom of God wherever we can. So maybe gospel is choosing to make the world what it should be and ignoring the powers of this world that tell you it'll be impossible. You can't take care of everyone. There's just not enough money or resources to do it. Well, my God says otherwise. I think we can. Maybe the gospel is turning off both Fox News and MSNBC and going outside and finding a neighbor to love. Maybe gospel is making an effort to look a stranger in the eye and to smile and to realize that the Holy Spirit has a plan for their life and wonder, what can I do to help? Gospel can be listening and showing compassion. Gospel is opposing those who would wield power to oppress people. Gospel might even be choosing to suffer with others rather than to let them suffer alone. The number of articles I have sent to me or put in my Twitter feed or whatever on a hourly basis about why Christian churches in America are closing or why isn't it working or why, why is it so hard to fill a sanctuary on Sunday morning? You have no idea the number of people writing about this every hour of every day. I think maybe one of the root causes is that we seem to have forgotten that the gospel isn't just about staying saved in our church. Maybe if more of our churches were interested in the gospel and bringing redemption to others, and to institute a kingdom built on compassion and fashioned in the image and example of Jesus Christ, maybe people would be more interested in coming. Because I don't know about you, but if I go to my friends at work who don't believe in Jesus and they don't want to go to church at all, and I start talking about Jesus when he said, hey, I'm going to bring justice to the poor. I'm going to bring freedom to the captives. I'm going to set prisoners free. I'm going to bring sight to the blind. I'm going to make the lame walk again. My atheist anti-church friends go, yeah, how can I do that? When I say, hey, you know, Jesus preached that we were all of equal value in the sight of God and that we shouldn't show favoritism. And that instead of advancing our own interests, we should look to the interests of others. My atheist anti-church friends go, yeah, how can I do that? I think maybe the problem isn't with the gospel. Maybe the reason we can't fill our church on Sunday morning has more to do with the fact that we are not living the gospel. And so I don't, I don't have fancy, like, 12 steps to grow your church books. I've read them. I kind of hate them. <laughs> you know? Like, it's just not my jam. What I pray for, what I dream about at night as Pastor Kevin, what I wish I could see is I wish that the Holy Spirit would be so evident in each of you and in me that people would just kind of walk up and go, hey, can I, 
Can I join you? This thing that you're doing, this work that you're doing, I, I want to do that too because I can see that it is good. This is, this is good news you're bringing. I, I want it. So I think, to come back to me intentionally taking Thessalonians out of context, I think if we don't do the work of the gospel, we don't get to eat at the bread of life. I think there's a fundamental link there where you need to be participating in the work that God has for us and the redemption that God has for our neighbors and our friends to really fully taste and see the goodness of God. My guess is that if Jesus can turn the Roman world and the rest of the world for the next couple thousand years upside down with 11 people who sort of got it, what if the 50 or however many of us are in here this morning, what if we sort of got what the gospel was? What if we started to get just a tiny taste of what it is that God wanted us to do to bring redemption and healing and reconciliation to the world. What if we stopped waiting for someone else to start it and we just said, hey, I can do that over there today. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, that's going to happen. If 11 changed the world, I can't wait to see what 50 of us can pull off. Because if we don't do the work of the gospel, I just don't see the bread of life being celebrated. Maybe our churches aren't surviving an outward onslaught of people that just can't stand to see church win in culture. Maybe what's actually happening is we have a lot of churches that are starving because we're just not eating. So I wish I had like a tidy bow to wrap on that. Maybe something happy. <laughs> but what I feel when I say this out loud is personally convicted. Because if I were to chart out my day and say, okay, this is the amount of time I spend to relaxing. This is the amount of time I spend on my kids, my wife, my work, my pastor work. If I were to actually label the amount of time in the last three weeks that I spent doing something because I thought the Holy Spirit asked me to. Eh. It's not anywhere near where it should be, personally. So here's what my resolution is and what I hope you'll join me. I want to see the gospel of Christ at work in my life to benefit others. I want to see what happens when I'm listening to the Holy Spirit enough that I can be about the business of redemption. And 
I want to see what God is able to do in the lives of my friends and neighbors and the good that he is about to bring them because I listened and because I obeyed. Because we have work to do. So we're going to celebrate this table together. Because this is what brings us together so that we can go out. We come together. We go and we serve. We come together. We go and we serve. We come together. We go to serve. Maybe every time we come together, someone else comes with us. Because they saw the work that we were doing and they say, yes. I'd like to do that too. That's the kind of God I'm going to serve. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, at least I do, 